Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be this morning. Yeah, like I said, but that, you know, that drum box could have been really handy last week. Um, I could have put the pulpit in there and I wouldn't have needed the bulletproof vest. You know what I mean? We could have just put that been like a little Pope thing, you know what I mean? Could have done that with no hat. There's no room for a hat in there, but um, it would have worked. 1 Corinthians 15. This week, like I said, last week we, we looked at the end of chapter um, 14. We talked about orderly worship. We talked about um, women and their role in the church. And then we, we really brought that to bear. And I know some of you guys probably were like, man, I'm making sure my wife comes to church next week because it's going to be that passage. Just talk about women. And then I just totally smacked you upside the head a little bit with the word. I know that. But, um, but we're men. We can take that. And uh, with the mantle of leadership comes that extra responsibility. So it's good for us as men to be reminded of those things. Amen? Amen, men? <laughs> amen. How many of you said that because your wife's elbowed you right before that? Amen. <laughs> no, so that's where we were last week. This week, um, Paul's bringing things to a close here, and, and, and he's bringing some awesome hope to bear. Um, that there's just, just some great, the next couple of weeks, there's just some beautiful and awesome stuff for us to be able to look at and be encouraged by. Um, and so today, we're going to be looking here in chapter 15 about the resurrection. Now, we sort of started this already on Easter Sunday. I went slightly out of order because there's really no better passage to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ than 1 Corinthians 15. So we did kind of the first part of this a couple of weeks ago. Um, The main thrust of our time here today will be verses 12 through 34. And what we're going to be looking at is Paul's words to a group of people here in the city of Corinth, a Greek area, where many people, because of really the, the Greek philosophical systems and, and then even belief systems that had invaded and kind of come into Christianity as a whole, there were a lot of people who denied the resurrection. The Greek people largely didn't believe in resurrection of us or Jesus or anyone after that. And a lot of that philosophy had permeated the church as well. So you had a lot of people there that, that they espoused Christianity. They would say that they're followers of Jesus. They're, they're coming to church gatherings, but they're also not believers in some of these more supernatural elements, if you will, um, specifically the resurrection. And you say, well, I don't know why we need to spend a ton of time on that today because, you know, that's not going to be the issue for us. I mean, that's what Christianity is all about. And Christians wouldn't argue that. Christians wouldn't debate the resurrection, would they? Well... There's a man named John Shelby Sponge who wrote a book called A New Christianity for a New World. And here's a quote out of his book. He says, I do not believe that Jesus was born by the miracle of a virgin birth, nor do I believe that virgin births occur anywhere except in mythology. I do not believe that angels sang to hillside shepherds to announce his birth or that he fled to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod. I do not believe that the events Christians celebrate at Easter were the resurrection of the three days dead body of Jesus Christ. 
Now this is, you see, this is an important thing to understand. This is a big deal. The reason this is a big deal is because Mr. John Shelby Sponge is a preeminent lecturer in seminaries throughout the country, and he's been a pastor for 30 years. He lectures at Harvard Divinity School and places all over the country. Now, I, I, I do owe you an apology. I, I feel like, I feel the responsibility that I should apologize on his behalf. He's from North Carolina. And, and let me just say, it doesn't represent us all. I'm sorry for that. If we had known, we'd have like locked him down or something. But he got out, and this is what he's teaching, and this is what's spreading. And there is, believe it or not, much too, you'd be surprised how much of this actually takes place. That there are people throughout the world that they'll expose Christianity or gravitate towards Christianity or even just the teachings of Jesus and say, I like these things. I want to follow these things. But the whole resurrection thing, no, I don't don't believe that part. And I don't believe uh, that a fish swallowed a guy and spit him up later. And the flood thing makes for a good Russell Crowe movie. But other than that, I, I really don't buy into some of those sorts of things. And let's be honest. These are fanciful things, right? These are not small claims. When you're talking about a faith that we are giving our lives to that teaches some of those things, those are not easy things for the natural man to believe. Those who would have skepticism towards such things, we we, got to admit, we understand that. These are pretty big things to claim. The the question, though, is, is what's our response to those things? If someone was saying, no, you don't really believe Jesus actually rose from the dead, do you? What's our response? What's our belief system? What's our basis even for our belief system? I mean, just look at the movies today. We've got this movie that's come out. It's called Heaven is for Real, about the little boy that saw this vision, and it was a book, and now it's a movie. And we have people flocking to the theaters and, and who love this story because it gives them hope. And because it gives them assurance, it's like this movie is now proof of the resurrection and the fact that there's life after this. And that may be all nice and good and warm and fuzzy, but I really hope we're not hanging all of our hopes on the words of a little three or four or eight or however old he is boy, right? Like what's our response to that? Well, this is what Paul addresses here in 1 Corinthians 15. He addresses the issue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he does it in resounding fashion, in ways that is even lost now as time has gone by compared to the way this would have read to the original audience of that time. Paul comes in and says, there's no denying this. Or as his cohort Peter would say, we do not follow cleverly devised fables. This happened. We saw it. Some of you saw it. And so Paul lays out this argument as we saw earlier in chapter 15 when we looked at this on Easter Sunday. He says, look, not just me, but lots of people saw it. Many, many people saw Jesus Christ after he had resurrected from the dead. He says at one point there were over 500 people gathered together and Jesus appeared to all of them. And most of them are still alive. You can just go ask them for yourselves. This isn't some myth. People walked with him. They talked to him. They shared meals with him. He is alive. It's real. We also have all sorts of other evidence. I mean, there's so much that makes this one of the most well-documented and most proven historical facts of anything that we accept from ancient history as truth Nothing has the amount of weight behind it as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing. 
I mean, we even have things such as his own family. If you've been with us in the book of Mark or been tracking with us online, listening to the teachings, we've seen repeatedly how his family thought he was insane. But then after he raised from the dead, they worshiped him as Lord, gave their lives for him. Anybody have a crazy uncle? Would you give your life for your crazy uncle? We spend more time trying to figure out how not to get together with crazy uncle, much less giving our lives for him. You're not going to do that. They did without hesitation, with enthusiasm. We also see further evidence the tomb of Jesus Christ, for example, was not enshrined originally. Oh, it has been now. But at the time, it was a common practice that someone with influence, a, a spiritual leader, a king, anyone in those kind of positions, their tomb would be enshrined. And, and this isn't just a cultural thing. We still kind of do this today, don't we? I mean, every time there's an accident where someone passes away in an auto accident, that afternoon you can drive by the side of that wreck and you start seeing things pop up, don't you? Crosses and flowers and candles, and that's what I'm referring to. There becomes this, this memorial where we're bringing things to the place where they pass. It's a, a way of grieving. They did not do that in this case, though it would have been within their customs to absolutely do that. They didn't. You know why? Because if they wanted to remember Jesus, they could just go see him. He was still walking around. There was no, the, the tomb, in a sense, was a, an afterthought after the resurrection, and that's the way they approached it. Um, Christians started meeting on, sun, on Sundays instead of Saturdays. That's massive. I mean, that was a massive cultural shift. But people changed from celebrating on the Sabbath on Saturday, switched over, started worshiping on Sundays to commemorate the fact that Jesus rose again. If he didn't rise, then what's so special about Sunday? There's no point to that. Christians also, uh, or non-Christians even, there's historical writings that attest to this. Josephus is a Jewish historian, Jewish historian, who would have had no desire to prove that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He was born about the time of Jesus and one of the well, most well-respected historians, ancient historians that there's ever been. And listen to his own writings. This is what he said. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it even be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold, those and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. That's what he wrote. Just, just fact, historical thing. Oh, by the way, he was alive and Christianity is alive to this day because of the fact that Jesus rose. But, but maybe the more compelling evidence, especially for our cases today as we're looking at this, our purposes today, is the fact that the Apostle Paul is the writer of these words. Because the Apostle Paul had committed his life to wiping Christianity and any memory or mention of Jesus Christ off the face of the earth, committing horrendous crimes against Christians, murdering Christians, arresting Christians, doing whatever he could to end this thing called Christianity. And then everything changes because he saw him, because he met him, 
because Jesus Christ resurrected, appeared to him, knocked him off his horse, literally and figuratively, and everything changed. His response, even when that happened, was just, Lord, just like instantly, Lord. Like not, wait a minute, I thought you, you mean just instantly, Lord. And it's very much like even throughout the Old Testament when the glory of God would appear to men, you see over and over men responded initially by face down on the ground, instantly bowed before them because they were so in awe at the majesty and glory of God. And so Jesus, his resurrected body, appears before Paul and the same thing happens, boom, instantly to the ground. No debating, no arguing, no, you're a fraud, just you are God, you are the Lord, what do you want from me? Paul's life itself is one of the greatest testimonies we have to the fact that Christianity is true. And as a result of all these things, as a result of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no other faith, no other movement, no other philosophy in the history of the world has had the kind of impact, the kind of footprint that Christianity has. It's affected everything in the world globally. There's no other way to explain that than the fact that the tomb is actually open. Say, no, it's just, it's just a myth that got out of control and his followers believed that it was all just a hoax. I mean, just think about that. They created a myth, a hoax, that would mean that they have to be homeless, they have to be tortured, their family's gonna reject them, they're gonna be brutally murdered and they're gonna be happy about it. That's a dumb hoax. That makes no sense. And even if that was the case, you would think at a point when things start to go bad, they go, we were just kidding. We were so, time out. Just kidding, that was just a little email thing that we sent out. We didn't know it was gonna get traction like that, so we were just joking. You can put the spears away and tie those lions back up, please. But they died willingly for the glory of God, counting it an honor to die on behalf of the risen Savior. There's no other explanation. Jesus is alive. He's alive, amen? He's absolutely alive. But... Let's ask this question just for fun. Paul does. Can you have Christianity and not believe in the resurrection? Or can someone say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, but, but I'm not going to hold on to this part. I don't think that's really what happened. Even if you wanted to go the route, well, he, he went to the cross, but, and he did live and all these things, but I don't believe in the resurrection. Can, can you have that belief system? Or maybe even better put, should anyone believe in Christianity apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Paul kind of tackles here in chapter 15. In verse 12, he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, Paul approaches this question. So if, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, what's the point of all this? What are the benefits? What do we lose as Christians? Where are we if we say, I'm following Christianity, but I don't believe in the resurrection, or if we just, Jesus isn't alive? How does that affect us, our faith, our position? 
Well, Paul brings a couple of things to bear. Number one, he says, if Christ is dead, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then, the, then death is the end for all of us. The final destination for every single one of us, no matter what we do, no matter where we've been, the final destination is the dirt with us in it. That's the end. There's no other hope apart from that. Death has not been defeated by Jesus Christ on the cross. There is nothing else that gives us any hope whatsoever, especially any sort of verifiable hope at all. Reincarnation, please, I'll avoid that rabbit trail, but no. There's nothing that gives us any hope. Our destiny is a hole in the ground if Jesus Christ is not raised. Number two, he says the apostles' teachings are false. They're absolute lies. If Jesus has not raised from the dead, they are lies. And and so for someone to say that I choose to follow Christianity and I follow the teachings of Christ, but I don't believe in the resurrection, that means that you're taking, if you will, life advice from liars. You're basing your entire existence on the writings of people who are verifiable liars. And there's no point to any of that. The teaching, the preaching, all of that stuff completely worthless if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead. You say, ah, Jeff, that's, that's a bit harsh. There's some good stuff in there. That's some good, good things to apply for our lives. Well, Paul's third point would be, no, no, no. It's not just that it's lies. Number three, if Christ is still dead, our teaching and our faith in general, Christianity as a whole, is completely worthless worthless. He uses the word vain. And some of you have heard uh, the, the word it, it compared to a, like a, it's like a bubble. It looks like there's something there, but you try to touch it and it's just gone. There is nothing behind it. There is nothing tangible. There is no benefit. It is completely and totally worthless. You go, but no, look, it's still a good idea to live according to these things. It's still a good idea for children to honor their parents. It's still good for us to live that kind of moral Christian life, even if, even if Jesus was dead. But to that I would say, uh, why? Why should we honor our parents? Why should we take care of our neighbor? If death is the end, if the God that commands us to do these things in Scripture is dead, and if there's no other hope apart from this, this is our only shot then the only logical thing in the world for us to do would be to live totally and completely for ourselves for the little bitty window of time that we got. Anything else makes no sense at all. To give of your life for someone else because you're going to model the life of someone who actually lied and is now dead, that's dumb. Why would you do that? It just doesn't make any sense. And you say, no, but, but it's because they're good things. Well, okay, they're moral things, but based on what? Based on the morality that God has given us who lied and isn't alive. So what's the point of that? If if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there's no point to any of this stuff. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then it would be silly of us not to live for ourselves, not to take advantage of every single opportunity for pleasure or self-gratification to get as much as we can while we got it. Because when it's all done, there's nothing left and there's no point to anything else. So you might as well enjoy it while you're here. That's the only thing that would make any sense. Number four, if Jesus has not been raised, then our sins have not been forgiven. Christ's resurrection was the the proof positive that he has triumphed over death, that he has defeated sin and death, that his sacrifice was acceptable to God who raised him from the dead. And so if Jesus Christ has not raised again, then death still reigns. Death still has victory. 
The price for our sin has not been fully paid, and we are still completely in our sins. His sacrifice was not sufficient to atone for us. So we're still in really bad shape. And if Christ has not raised from the dead, then those who died before us, he says, are gone forever. Grandma, who read the Bible to you when you were growing up, who listened to J. Vernon McGee on the radio every day, who gave to her church, who loved Jesus faithfully all the way to the end, who prayed as she was passing, was a fool, was tricked, was deceived, and she is gone forever. That's the reality of it. If Jesus Christ has not raised from the dead, that's the absolute truth. And Paul concludes it all by saying, look, if if Christ hasn't raised from the dead, the last point, that no one on earth should be pitied more than Christians. Because we have based our life, not only have we based our life on a lie, but we've based our life on a lie that teaches us to give our lives away for the sake of others. And this is the only shot we get. It makes no sense. And we are literally pathetic if Christ is not raised from the dead. That would be pretty lame. It's a bad situation. Except for he's not dead. Christ did rise from the grave. If Christ had died, that would be the reality. But because Jesus Christ is alive, because he absolutely rose from the dead, all of those things, none of that stuff applies anymore. You go, okay, well, let's bring some hope in here. You said encouragement. That's all the stuff that happens if Jesus is still dead. What do we gain now because Jesus is still alive? Paul is glad you asked. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Number one, because Jesus is alive, we will be alive. Because Jesus was resurrected, we can look forward to the resurrection. He uses the term first fruits. It's more of an agricultural term, really, where when the harvest was there, all the crops had grown, they would go and collect of the first batch, if you will, and bring them and give them before God as an offering, thanking him for all the good stuff they were about to collect. So the the bringing of the first fruits to the temple was an assurance of the fact that there is a harvest coming. It was sitting there waiting on them. They were just doing this and then going instantly to go and collect of the harvest that was there. And that's the example given us about Jesus Christ. The fact that he rose from the dead, he is the first fruits of the resurrection that we will experience. That for us, for the Christian, this life is as bad as it's ever going to get. Amen for that? This, it will never be worse than this. Once this is over, the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us of good things on the horizon. You have a harvest awaiting you, and you can bank on that. You can willingly give of yourself and your time and your treasures. You can willingly invest in the kingdom of God because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof and evidence that there is a resurrection awaiting you and I. That is good news. Amen? I'm expecting, just warning you in advance, all kinds of amens as we go through these things. Just just laying it out there. Um, Number two, because Jesus is alive, we now belong to Jesus and not Adam. Look what he says, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Our heritage before Jesus is that of Adam. He is our father. He is our uh, forefather, our patriarch, if you will. 
And when he rebelled against God and fell into sin, sin and death entered the world, and that became our legacy, our heritage, our inheritance. We are in the bloodline of Adam. We are born in sin, born with a sin nature, and destined to that inheritance to follow the path of our forefathers into death. And then Jesus comes and he interrupts history, if you will, though that's really a bad way of saying it because he actually had arranged all of history for his coming. But he comes into the scene and he sees the problem of humanity. He injects himself, if you will, into our problem, becomes man, pays the price for that death once and for all, rises from the grave, ascends into heaven, and then teaches and tells us that all who believe in him and believe that God has raised him from the dead, God has given him, John 1 tells us, the power to be called sons of God, not Adam. The Bible in Galatians teaches about the fact that we have been adopted into the family of God. And in multiple places in the scripture, it refers to us now as joint heirs of Jesus Christ. So suddenly the destiny that we had under Adam is interrupted. And we've now jumped onto a totally different track. It's really the way adoption is in general. I mean, the, the, the very principle of adoption, you take someone who seems to have no real future, seems destined for difficulty or poverty or abuse or whatever it is, and now they've been adopted. They've been brought into your family. You've given them your name. You've brought them in, and suddenly now they're even legally, boom, they're heirs. They're on a whole new track with a whole new future and a whole new hope. That's the principle. Man, the, the doctrine of adoption for Christians is amazing. You have a brand new family. You have a brand new future. The legacy of shame is gone, and you are now an inheritor, an heir, if you will, of the perfection that Jesus Christ has laid out before us. It's an amazing truth. And, and for some of us, this either is hard for us to wrap our heads around or, or incredibly encouraging because for a lot of us, our experience with fathers has been disappointing. For, we talked about this last week. For a lot of us, our experience with fathers and with heritage and with lineage, we can look back and see difficulty and pain and disappointment and abandonment. But the good news is that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you have a heavenly father who says, though your mother and father on earth may abandon you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have a new dad. You have a new family. You have a new future because Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Amen? That's number two. We got more. Number three, because Jesus is alive, we have the assurance of a new kingdom to come. Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Okay, let's just make this clear. 
Here's what he's saying. We have an assurance. Christ's, fruit, Christ's resurrection is not just the first fruits of the fact that we will live again, that we will be resurrected, but it's also the first fruits that a new kingdom is coming. And that is a desire of all of our hearts. Because the kingdom we're in now, not only did Adam fall into sin, but all of creation fell into sin. And from that day, everything's just frustrating. That's the word the Bible uses, that creation has been frustrated. And I think we've all seen that, right? Right now is the kind of time of year where things are great. We're mowing green grass, we're pruning bushes, flowers are coming up. It's beautiful, right? But it's all going to die. It's, it's all going to die. The, the leaves in the maple tree that give you shade that you enjoy now, you will curse them in October. You will. You'll be frustrated again with the leaves. Praise God for Hilton Fuel. That's where you can take them for free and dump them. In case, doesn't matter. Anyway, you're going to be frustrated. That's just the way it is. Life is frustrating. There's this cyclical nature of life, 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 oh, death again. Life, 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 oh, death again. And things just in general are frustrating. There's so many things that right when you think things are working to your advantage, they can just become frustrating. Can I just, I'm going to vent. I'm an Apple fan. You know this. I'm all about Apple, but I'm not real happy with Apple right now. So as you, speaking of evidence of creation being marred, uh, my wife's grandmother passed away a couple of months ago. Some of you guys were at the memorial service even. I, we really appreciate that. It was a blessing to us. And, um, and so you have that unsavory task after the fact of dealing with stuff, right? Um, we even had yard sale this weekend. There's just, it's just a, that process. It's just never any fun. But she had a brand new iPhone 5S, the latest and greatest, right? And it was brand new. She hardly even used the thing. And so it gets left to my wife, Bronwyn, who's still using an old school phone and frustrated. Brand new phone. Yeah, well, that's great. I'll use grandpa, grandma's phone. Well, we thought we had grandma's password to everything. And it turns out we don't. And of course, we didn't find this out until after she'd passed away. So we start going through the process. All right, what's all her pet's names? Annie, one, two, three, four. No. Um, you know, just kind of going through all that kind of thing, looking at the passwords to everything. I was trying everything. We can't get into that phone. So we go to AT&T. Can you guys help us? We're, she just inherited this phone. We're trying to transfer this thing over. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> they couldn't help anything. Like they made it sort of workable, but not really workable. And so you're just like, my goodness, man, this is now going on for a couple of weeks. This is starting to get frustrating. So we call Apple on the phone. Apple guy is awesome. He's so encouraging. He's like, hey, this has all been for your benefit, man. Don't worry. Because we've put security measures in place. So if someone stole your phone, they can't just type in a couple of codes and then go and sell your phone to someone else. It's, it makes it difficult, but we can work past that. I love you, Apple guy. Thank you. Genius. We're in, right? He goes, all I need is a couple of things. It's real simple. I need a death certificate and I need a letter from the executor of the will explaining that you are the one who is supposed to have the phone. I can get that. It's lame. I mean, you even feel weird taking a death certificate and using it to get a phone. But we did. Get all that stuff. Send it back. That should fix all our problems. Then we're going to be good. And again, Apple's doing this for my benefit. So we send all that stuff in. And then they contact us back like three and a half weeks later. Great, man. We've got all that stuff. That's awesome. We only need one more thing. Awesome, Apple guy. What's the one more thing that I need? I need a court order 
stating that you are now the official beneficiary of this phone. So now we got to hire an attorney. We're not gonna, don't worry. But now we got to hire an attorney, go into court, have a judge rule that this phone can be unlocked, send all of that to Apple, wait forever. It's like the spinning pinwheel of death while we're waiting on that thing. And then eventually they're gonna, Apple people got that. Then they're gonna send all this stuff back. And then finally, maybe the phone works. That is so frustrating. But that's life, isn't it? Isn't that just life? You ever have that feeling like, okay, this is never going to go smoothly as we always hope it will. I'm going to have a flat tire on my vacation. I'm going to buy my kids the Christmas gift and be out of batteries or one controller comes with a stupid video game system or what. I mean, it's just always, it's like no matter how advanced we get, no matter how hard we try, no matter how organized, technologically advanced, it doesn't matter. There's things in life that are just plain old frustrating. It's just the reality of it because this world is never going to work right until Jesus Christ comes again. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence for us of that. And look, we're just talking like silly little ha-ha-ha, stupid phone kind of stuff. I mean, you can find my phone on eBay now, or her phone. But anyway, before that, <laughs> let some other sucker deal with it. But anyway, um, no, Afghanistan, oh, we'll get that under wraps and then we'll be all fine. Egypt, oh, okay, bumping the road. Syria, Ukraine. And we sort of always trick ourselves into thinking once we get beyond that one more thing, there's going to be peace on the other side of that. And it never quite comes out that way. No matter how smart we get, no matter how now we can, we can talk with one another technologically, no matter where you are in the world, but we'll never get all the nations, we'll never get all the people on the same page. We're always going to have violence because sin has changed everything. And this is something that is common to everyone. Like everyone understands this. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, everyone understands the frustration of life. And there's this inherent belief in everyone that it's got to be better than that. In Ecclesiastes, it says he has written eternity into the hearts of men. And even unbelievers feel that way. That's why you can have a guy who is an absolute, like, antagonistic towards Christianity, but who wants to go eliminate suffering in other places because they look at the world and it just, you can just see something's not right. And we have this longing in our souls for something better than this. The difference is, is that as Christians, we do understand that the only time that all those things are going to be dealt with is when Jesus Christ comes in power. That's when it's going to be dealt with. Now, we work to alleviate suffering. We want to feed the poor. We want to be involved in justice and do the best we can with all that. And we don't look at suffering and go, well, it's just going to be that way. But Jesus did promise us, didn't he? He said, look, the poor you will have with you always. So, so we approach suffering and injustice because we are trying to point to something better that's coming. We are trying to be the literal hands and feet of Jesus, ministering to needs in such a way that people don't see us for our good works, but they see that there is a God who brings hope in suffering. That's why Christians are involved throughout the world. The world's just not right. And we all deep down know this, but the Bible has given us because of the resurrection. This is what Paul says in this text. When Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he set into motion a series of events that will culminate with Jesus Christ returning in power and glory, sin and death kicked to the curb once and for all, and the frustrations of life will be gone. 
If you're invested right now in Roundup, you're going to want to sell your stock at some point. Weeds, gone at some point. That's an evidence of the fall. It's a frustration of life. They will be gone. All of those things, but, but even more so, think about it. There is coming a day, and we can bank on this because of the resurrection of Jesus, that never again will cancer ravage the body of the people you love. Never again. Never. Never again will young women be taken advantage of. Will young boys be abused by fathers. Never again will there be strife. Never again will there be that kind of pain. Oh, there'll be tears, but they'll be wiped away from Jesus and there'll be tears of joy. No more sorrow, no more death. That is an absolute assurity. And the reason we can be so confident of that is because Jesus Christ has triumphed over death and has risen from the grave. And even told his apostles, if I go, it's to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will be back. John 14. That is a glorious hope that we have. When you read the news and you get caught up in the doom and gloom of how things are going, don't forget the hope that's on the back end of this. Don't allow that kind of frustration to permeate everything in your life. Always come back to the hope that, but I serve a God who's going to fix it all. Amen? That would have been a great amen. Anyway, verse 29. We don't have time to do it over. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now that verse that previously, it talks about being baptized for dead. That's one that a lot of different people, the, the Mormons, for example, have taken from that and used that for what's referred to often as baptism by proxy. So the idea would be, if you have a family member who's an unbeliever and they die, then you can go into the temple, be baptized on their behalf, and then that will move them, that'll change their track post-death from a track towards condemnation to a track towards heaven. That, that kind of baptizes them into heaven on their behalf. It, it's just not true. There's zero biblical backing for that whatsoever. That's not what that verse says. I've heard it said before, the line into heaven is single file. And none of us walk in going, it's okay, I got baptized twice, he's with me. In fact, if it's two by two, it's because it's Jesus with us every step of the way saying, he gets to come in because he's with me. And that's all. That's really important to understand. That's all, right? The only way to heaven, there is one door, the path is narrow, Jesus Christ and Christ alone, not Asterix or Jeff if he gets baptized for me after I die, Right? What this passage does say, though, is just what's the point anyway? If Christ is dead, why should we even go through the practice of being baptized so that we're joined with someone who's dead? He says, what's the point of me being on the edge of death every day? Whether that be dying to self or, or putting myself out there, making myself a target for persecution, what's the point of all that? Why should I, as a Christian, go into the arena at Ephesus and be killed by lions as many, many, many Christians have been? What's the point of all that? Why would we go through all of that if Jesus Christ is, is not alive? If he hasn't risen from the grave, what's the point of all that? And then he quotes Dave Matthews. For those of you that know the song, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And look, can I just say, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, that would be the best piece of advice any of us could have. If Christ is not alive, we are wasting valuable party time right now. And and I mean that sincerely. The Bible says in Proverbs, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those who are in bitter distress. And that would be us. We would be prime for self-medication if Jesus Christ has not risen from the grave. That's what he says. To live with anything else in mind just makes no sense. Why live for an eternity that doesn't exist? Why give of my life for someone else when this is all we get? Every man for himself, party, and just, oh well, see in the dirt. That would be the right answer. Why should we read our Bibles? Why should we tithe? Why should we pray? The reason is because Christ is raised from the dead. Because it's real. And he says in verse 33, Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It's a a famous line, actually, in culture at that time. It was a a very common saying in the Greek culture. And it means, hey, just be careful who you're listening to. Be careful who you're reading. Be careful who you're basing even life advice on. Bad company ruins good morals. The reality of the fact is we live and desire to live a life glorifying unto God because Jesus Christ is alive. And he is absolutely coming again. And he says in the final verse for our time here, verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. He's saying, look, guys, don't be misled. The king's coming. Jesus himself said in Mark 13, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, at midnight, in the morning, when the cock crows, be ready. And it says, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. So look, there's no time to waste on this. The the reason we want to live a life that's glorifying to God and that is a witness of the resurrection of Jesus to the people around us is because time is short. Jesus is alive, and he is coming back. And so to take the time that we have now and waste it now on self-indulgence, on drunkenness, on that sort of thing, it it doesn't make sense. And on the day that he comes, we don't want to be, as the scriptures say, that we don't want to be ashamed at his coming. That we want to give of our lives now knowing that there is so much better coming and knowing that those that we love dearly are around us all the time who don't know Jesus at all. So be careful who you listen to on those things. So are, are we saved by faith? Does works matter? We are saved by faith. Jesus' work matters in salvation. But we definitely are called and should desire and strive towards by the grace of the Holy Spirit to live a life in accordance with God's word that honors him, that follows his law to the best of our ability, knowing we'll fail, but his grace covers us, and being the body of Christ for a world that doesn't believe because he is real and he is coming. So are you saying that hell's real and my life now matters? Yeah. So sober up, find your pants, and let's move forward. It's real. It's real. The life we live does matter. But he's alive. And he's coming again. And this is just rehearsal for eternity. And eternity will be amazing. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just to be celebrated on Easter. It is the most significant event in the life of every single believer. And the good news is, it is a verifiable fact. It is absolutely true. Like I said, I'll be in Israel in like three weeks. I'll take a picture for you. The grave is empty. Jesus is alive. Your king is coming again. Your king is coming again. That's what I'm talking about. You guys stand. Sam's going to close us in song. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement and the hope that the resurrection brings us. Father, I, I thank you for this reminder, Lord. So It's so easy for us under the stresses and burdens and busyness of our days to start thinking that, that we are the center or that the important thing is the things that we have on our to-do list. To even fret over our own lives in such a way that we have forgotten the reality of the resurrection. And that, Lord, you may give, you may take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord who has died on behalf of our sins, who paid the price for our sin, who is coming again in power and in glory. I thank you, God, for the reality of the resurrection. I thank you, God, for the assurance that you give us. God, I pray for those around us who don't know you. We all have friends and family who have not given their lives to you, who don't recognize the truth of your resurrection. And God, we pray, Lord, that you would do a work in their hearts. We pray, God, that you would change those that we love. Lord, we don't want to see anyone that we love destined toward an eternity apart from you. And Lord, we can pray that with confidence, knowing that that does reflect your heart. So I pray, God, that you would just change people. Lord, will you use us to change people? Will you give us the boldness to say your name? Give us, Lord, the drive for evangelism to bring others to a knowledge of you. May we be vessels of your spirit for others around and examples of your goodness. May we carry ourselves, Lord, with joy, not shying away from the difficulties of life, knowing that they're real, but knowing that there is a hope on the back end of all of this for us. And I pray, God, that people would ask us a reason for the hope that is within us and that by your spirit, you'll give us the right words in that season. And then, Lord, overall, help us to be people of joy and hope. Help us to be people who keep our eyes on the real prize, who are not found waiting, who are not found asleep when you come. Thank you for the truth, Lord, that for us, death is not the end. You describe death for us as a nap. Lord, thank you for that reality that you love us that much. And I pray, God, that we would be worshipers of you who have such eager, even giddy anticipation of heaven and of the things that you have prepared for us. You are a good father, and we love you. We want to live for you and serve you. In Jesus' name. Let's close in song.